Hello, everyone, and welcome to Living a Life Through Books, the podcast about everything bookish. I'm your host, Dr. Shanaz Ahmed, and today we are chatting for a good cause. We have a few guests, Alex Wallace and Matthew Kressel, are rejoining me. This time, we also have David Flynn and Lena Warwood join us in discussing an alternate history anthology that came together in a surprisingly short time, and it's for a good cause, Ukraine. I'm going to get right into this episode. All the links to support me and to support this anthology project will be in the show notes. Please take a look. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Alex, Matthew, David, and Lena. Well, everyone, welcome to the Living a Lester Books podcast. Some of you, welcome again. David and Lena, welcome for the first time. I'm excited to have you all here. Today we are talking specifically alternate history and Ukraine and the anthology that David came up with in an ungodly time of 17 hours or 17 days? 17 days. Okay, 17 days. All right. So, David, tell us about this project, where the idea came from, and then where you went from it, and how did you manage to get an entire anthology in 17 days? I can't write a sentence in 17 days. For comparison, uh, hi, I'm Alex Wallace. I'm back again. And the anthology that I discussed in the last episode I was on took 15 months. So just to give you a benchmark for how long these projects usually take. So, David. Yes. Well, the the idea started, Lena originally suggested when uh, the invasion started uh, of Ukraine, Lena suggested uh, Ukraine write-a-thon over a course of a day. I forget who raised the suggestion of developing a book. I mean, we're a bunch of alternate history writers, and it seemed like a logical thing to do. But the suggestion got raised for that uh, we should write a book where the proceeds go to the DEC uh, Ukraine appeal, which is what has happened. At the time when we started, there was a general feeling in the air that the events were going to be moving quickly. Okay, we're historians, not predictors. But that was it. So it was fairly clear that we needed to proceed fairly quickly in order to build up a contribution to the reconstruction that's going to be necessary. March the 4th, we started on this. I've experience in editing, so uh, I suggested, and time being of the essence, I, I basically contacted everyone I knew who could write and uh, basically asked for submissions fairly quickly. The response was fairly quick and I made sure that I kept people updated as to how things were uh, doing in a fairly public way so that I couldn't slack off so people could see the progress. And those authors who weren't submitting quickly, got shamed into... I'm very good at shaming people. (laughs) And from the first call on March the 4th to publication on March the 21st, it was there. I'm fairly lucky in that I'm uh, retired, and so therefore I could devote all my efforts 
for this period, um, but it, it was hard work. Proofing, there's a couple of uh, errors in proofing that ended up in there, but I'm not too sad about that. Everybody was terribly keen to make it their top top priority. So um, how the many... Authors, the cover artist, everyone. So how many um, authors did you have in this anthology? Uh, there are 13 stories uh, with 12 authors. I produced uh, two very short stories, but there's 12 authors all told. And I'm, I'm guessing Lena's one of the authors and Matthew, you're one of the authors? That's uh, correct. And Alex, you're yes. one of the authors too. Now, when this project came up to you guys, did you guys all decide, okay, no, I'm going to write about this element. I'm going to write about alternate history and Ukraine in 1900. And then someone else says, no, I'm going to capture 1950 and I'm going to do this. And how did that work? How did you guys decide what story to write and how to go about it? When we started the project, sorry. Go ahead. ahead. When we started the project, it was really that we were keen to make a difference. And so we wanted to be quite open with what people were going to write. The theme of building better worlds was sort of, I suggested it as a sort of throwaway because it was an, a reference to aliens, but we could end up with building a better world, building a better future, which was good. Um, and it was basically around, I felt that that was sort of where we started and where we pitched the event. I'm unfortunately, I'm not, I don't have a story in here because I was organising like the nuts and bolts of putting on the event and scheduling and things like that. So yes. That, but our part, my participation that was to do with um, format. And as I say, we wanted to keep it open because we wanted something that anyone could be involved in. Ukraine is such a specific area of knowledge. Like with alternate history, it helps if you write about something that you know and can connect with. Right. So, Matthew, did you already have this vast knowledge of Ukraine and you're like, oh, yeah, Ukraine, got it. OK. And just came up with it. Or how did that what was your process on that? Well, I have to confess that my story actually doesn't have that much to do with Ukraine. I think it was more the building a better future idea uh, that kind of went with it. And I actually have to give David credit for this one because he actually I had wanted to contribute something. And I saw the announcement at like 11 o'clock at night or something here in Alabama and was like, this is an amazing thing. And I want I I need to do something to contribute to this. But it's the middle of the night and I have no idea. So I'm going to sleep on it. And by the time I woke up the next day, David had reached out to me and said, I've been looking through your vignettes that you've been writing here on the Sea Lion Press Forum. And there's one in particular I'd really like to use if you don't mind. And as it happened, I had been getting that story ready to start sending off to places to try and get it published elsewhere. So it was just a wonderful kind of confluence of events. So mine actually, uh, my story actually has to do with the supposed ice age that everybody was expecting in the 1970s that didn't come to pass because climate change went the other direction. And as we talked about the last time I was on here, I'm a, I'm a huge space nerd. So I put the two of those ideas together in my story, which was basically the idea borrowed unashamedly from Arthur C. Clarke's 2010, basically ter- trying to turn Jupiter into a star to try and get and uh, create a second sun in the solar system to try and offset the, uh, the ice age that was coming. So that was that was my contribution to it. I mean, as Lena was saying, you know, the Ukraine is such a specific area of knowledge. And a lot of us who 
were aware of what was going on, but weren't experts on it. And at, at that point, I think if we were doing the anthology now, or if somebody wanted to do a follow-up anthology now, preferably one not done in 17 days, I think, for the sake of David's sanity, um, I, would, I would pitch something else. But at the time, time was of the essence, uh, I think, as David was saying earlier. So it was, I had something sitting there that fit the theme, and I was, I was grateful to put it towards a good cause. So you already had something. It's not like, oh, there's this thing and oh, my gosh, 11 p.m. OK, I'm going to write this short story. Oh, it's midnight. Here you go, David. Here's your short story in an hour. It's not like that, is it? Or- not, not this time anyway. So I, I've done that kind of thing before, but th- that was not the case with this, for better or worse. I tend to think for better because, you know, sometimes in the middle of the night, it's the great place to have ideas, but it's also it's sometimes the worst place to have ideas. Right. So, Alex, what about your experience? What, tell me about your story and how long did it take you to write your story or did you already have one in the bag? This one was something I came up with within the span of a day or two. It was actually inspired by a story in a collection of Chinese science fiction that I had read a couple days beforehand. It's a Synopticon, a, a, a celebration of Chinese science fiction edited by uh, Schwelling Christine And so there's one story in there near the end that involves time travel. And while I'm reading this, I'm trying to think of things where I can go, an optimistic alternate history story, something where something good happens. Because so much alternate history is asked about if something bad happens. So like, like how, what can I make better? And so I'm, I'm reading, there's this one story in there about, about a time traveler going back to the rape of Nanjing in 1937 when the Japanese troops just sacked the city and did an old manner of horrible things. And so it then occurred to me, uh, my mother's home country is right nearby. I'm half Filipino. So I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. We can do something here. And so I I threw the ideas around and I came up with a world where... Somewhat vague reasons that the, the Philippines avoids uh, American rule in the early 20th century and by the 1930s becomes something of an Asian tiger a couple decades before the term actually is coined. And my story from there involves a certain fortuitously placed Filipinos in Nanjing as the Japanese come invading the city and getting people out of there. So... As a Filipino, it helps avert two things. One, the horrors of the of the Philippine-American War, and two, uh, some of the nastier incidents of the S- Second Sino-Japanese War. So that's where I was going with the optimism part of it, wh- where the Philippines becomes an Asian Switzerland rather than a uh, another battleground of World War II, which is not better off for all humanity but better for one region at least so i i figured that was thematically coherent with the project and also that i mean the more i read about the russian war in ukraine the more i am reminded of the stories i was told by my grandparents about growing up in the japanese occupied philippines because they were children when then the japanese came and they saw awful awful things from what i've read it turns out i I just feels to me that what the japanese did in the philippines is a very particular way of punishing the country they're occupying leaving them nothing worth saving because when in the battle of manila 1945 
there is a Japanese officer named Sanji Iwabuchi who says, leave the Americans and Filipinos nothing worth liberating. Leave a wasteland of destroyed buildings and traumatized women. And there are a number of incidents in, in Ukraine where I think the Russians are doing something very similar. I mean, look at Bucha. And I just, like, like this is, I am so pro-Ukrainian because my own family has a history of that, of being invaded by foreigners and being brutalized by them. And so, I mean, frankly, I think Imperial Japan is a better parallel for the Russians are doing now than the, the Nazis, really, because in 1937, the Japanese were waging a war that was not technically a war in a country to the west of them, China. Which I, I just feel like is such an eerie parallel. And there's the whole sense of inferiority to the West and this need to prove themselves and it leading to a lot of awful things. And that is what I think of when I read about the war in Ukraine, first wow. and foremost. David, what were your stories about? Right. I did uh, two stories. First one was taking the theme of building a better future. It's entitled, uh, Thank You, Mr. Holmes. As a big digression, I'm a, a big Sherlock Holmes fan. This is uh, written from the point of view of one of the Baker Street irregulars who basically get the rough end of the uh, stick in a lot of uh, the stories insofar as they come along. They do the Sherlock Holmes stuff. They're sent off on their way rejoicing. And I'm uh, working class East End. I'm familiar with the sort of conditions that they would have lived in. Uh, Sherlock Holmes had a doctor, tame doctor. They, they Realistically, they would have had rickets. They would have had tuberculosis, uh, all the things. And the middle class um, Sherlock Holmes did nothing about it. The story focuses on the attitude of the Baker Street Irregular and how they've learned from how to do things from Sherlock Holmes. And basically, it's now, now it's payback time. They're going to make sure that they get a decent life in the future. Class warfare writ large, uh, as it were. And it's... Uh, essentially the, th the theme that sometimes a better future for some is a worse future for others. You don't always get everybody being brought up. It can happen, it's good when it does. Sometimes a better future for some is bad news for others. So that was the theme of that one. The second one, uh, HCI, I'm a big World War I buff as well, this is set in World War One. Um, HCI was an was an, an acronym uh, devised at the time. It stands for Heavy Casualties Inevitable, and it's basically uh, a series of letters home from soldiers from the trenches on a particular day from a particular uh, regiment being sent home, and then to give an indication of the sort of person that they were. There's someone telling their parents that when he's next home on leave, uh, he'll be proposing to his girlfriend. There's one from a young chap who joined up uh, underage and how everybody's taking great care of him. The officer sort of explaining 
given his position and his time, he's putting his affairs into order and he's telling his wife, I wish we could have had more time, but this time tomorrow I'm going to be dead. And then the scene, the scene then cuts to the first poppy day in 1919 uh, at the uh, war memorial at the village. And of course, all their names are listed on that. And just looking at the Try, it's trying to humanise the cost of war. It's so very easy for people to say 26 soldiers died, 13 people died. They're just numbers, and they're not numbers. There's people behind them. And um, that's what I was trying to convey in that story. There's a little framing device uh, with it about how... Basically, the faith to plant acorns um, uh, going in there. It's the doing this enabled a better future. They weren't going to see it, but the acorns will grow into oak trees that would be needed later on, and their great-grandchildren would be able to make use of it. That's absolutely Beautiful. I'd never heard of the uh, HCI, Heavy Casualties Inevitable. I, I hadn't heard that term before. That's, yes, that's like, um, wow. Douglas Haig, Douglas Haig uh, used it at the Battle of the Somme. Um, okay. Before that, he told he was having a row with Lloyd George about whether or not to go ahead. He want, uh, Haig wanted to delay it. Uh, he's said to uh, Lloyd George that if you order me to do this, there will be heavy casualties, uh, HCI. Lloyd George said that politically it's necessary, do it. Um, uh, it. It just seems like, you know, we have had so many wars in the history of our time and absolutely. nothing has changed. Every war there's been, I don't even know how many casualties and we just make it a statistic because if it's one person, then it's important. If it's thousands, then it's just a statistic. But Lena, you were organizing this whole thing, right? You organized this write-a-thon. Tell me about the write-a-thon, what happened, how you set it up, and how you kept everyone in line, essentially. I think what David said is really good, and David's story was really meaningful in that way, the acorns. It was about how Britain is built on hope, because yes. acorns because people had to plant acorns to grow oaks that would then be the masts for warships. Um, so it's quite a militaristic one, but it was really nice to think of like the small things. And I feel like as ultimate historians, we talk a lot about like small events making a difference. And that was why I was really keen that we as a community came together and did something when there are so many, we're all connected to lots of different communities. I thought this is the right one for us to try and do something because our values, I feel like as alternate historians, our values are very much that we can make a difference and things can change, things that history is not set. In terms of how we ran the event from that basis, the people who came together to write the book were amazing. We also had people who came together to put on writing events. We had a character design, character design exercise. We had, I gave a talk on flash fiction. Someone kept a long, short story running that everyone took turns in in writing. And we had these sort of times when we just check in with each other and see what we were writing. And one of the best things I think that came of it was a story about the Thirty Years' War, where 
alien goblins landed and defended a village in Germany. So yeah, I feel like it was just really, I, I think it was an event that really showed what I think the alternate history community can be, which is, I think, a sense of optimism that comes with when you believe my thought. So we have this Ukraine war and your alternate historians, I guess you write alternate history. What do you anticipate is going to be the significance of this war to the entire genre of alternate history? What I'm hoping is that, uh, and my apologies, Lana, uh, that what I'm hoping this particular initiative does at least is to kind of make the genre snap out of one of its uh, nasty undertones where, I mean, as David said, that there are people behind those numbers and we have this really unpleasant tendency to think in terms of these mass killing events as just a source of numbers that we, we, we make our maps and we write our history books all timelines and we forget that we're writing about a lot of people dying and that i think it gets really insidious when you're talking about the third world and other places that have been victims of imperialism because i mean that's the whole problem with a lot of like 19th 20th century adventure fiction you have mighty whitey going around killing brown people it's like you know there's an undertone here that isn't pleasant and I think more of that survives than people are willing to admit. And on the old History Weekly update side, no longer updates, Matt Mitrovich's old site, there's a, a piece by a guy named RVB O'Malley, who was one of the guys I learned AH from. And he's talking about how so many conventions of the old history genre make it easier for us to write about historical atrocities because it puts distance between us and all the dead people we're writing about. And what I'm hoping is that if this project does anything, it, in addition, you know, funding Ukraine refugee relief, which is important, that it just makes the genre realize what it's been doing for so long and try to figure out something to counteract that. Because as someone whose half his family is from a third world country who got brutalized by multiple powers over the course of the 20th century, it can leave a very unpleasant taste in my mouth sometimes because... I mean, you can write numbers about the Philippine, the Japanese invasion of the Philippines, or you can write about the people who were killed by it or were guerrilla fighters in the war, like my great-grandfather. And so I, I hope what happens is that this project's one of its side effects is to bring awareness to that and to help us nudge the genre in a more healthy way. What do you think, Matthew? I really very much agree with what Alex was saying. It was a few years ago, Steve Silver, who runs uh, the Sidewise Awards, he founded them, which is, uh, Alex very kindly said when we were on here last time, is essentially the Pulitzer Prize of our genre, commented, did a, did a whole anthology called Alternate Peace. And he predicated that on kind of the thinking that there's a lot of alternate history stories which are war-based. And the reasoning for that is, is that wars are big, single, dramatic events. Um, that makes it very easy to go in and say it's the reason, as we talked about last time, there's such a popularity of, you know, Axis victory in World War II or the Confederate victory in the Civil War. But there is so, so much more that we could touch upon that. It's it's funny, actually, Alex, you mentioning that because on my desk right now as we're talking, I'm actually reading Max Hastings' uh, Retribution, which very is very good book. Yeah, on the last year of the war in the Pacific. And it's been a, an absolute eye opener. Um, for exactly the reasons you're talking about, you know, I've, I've been interested in World War II since I was, 
you know, in my tweens, I think, as they say these days. And it's, it's one thing to read to read statistics. It's another to read the accounts of people who were there and to realize how horrible it is on the ground. And I think a lot of times as alternate historians, and we've seen this in a lot of the analysis that, you know, everybody expected this was all going to be over with in a matter of days, and it most certainly has not. You know, we look at numbers on paper and we assume that this is the way that things are going to work. And I think if there's been anything that we've learned from the experience of watching this conflict play out is that numbers on paper don't mean much without context. And whether that's, you know, in in some cases, you know, understanding, you know, the people on the ground or what the equipment is being used, or even as we're talking about here, the personal experiences of what these people are going through. I'm ho- that's certainly something I've I've taken away, and I've attempt I'm starting now to attempt to put into my writing more and more because I've certainly I I think part of growing as a writer is that you can admit your faults, you can admit your mistakes, and I have certainly, in retrospect, leaned into a number of tropes and whatnot that I am I'm not really comfortable with. But you know, we grow and we learn. Sometimes there are lessons hard earned. But yeah, I I very much kind of agree with what Alex says that I think if anything comes out of this project is that maybe as alternate historians we can look at it and go, you know, there's there's more that we can write about here. Yeah, and if we're talking about the book that you mentioned. And which, for the benefit of the listeners, is uh, Max Hastings' uh, Retribution, The Battle for Japan. I believe its Commonwealth title was Nemesis, which I think is the cooler title, but all of his books have better t- titles in the Commonwealth. Is yeah. that, uh, the, the part that really struck me about that book was the, about the firebombing of Japan. Yeah. because I mean, I remember that being utterly terrified by reading that, and I say this as someone... Uh, as you may remember, is from a people who the Japanese invaded. And so me talks about how knowing full well that most Japanese cities were made predominantly of wood, the Americans loading their bombs with napalm. Like, they wanted it to burn. Yeah. They wanted... I mean, the firebombing is killed more than the A-bomb, for, for, for context. And just the enormity of all that just sinking into me was something I still remember. And it, it's sort of thing I think that the genre needs to keep in mind. Yeah, as I think you know, we it's it's one of the problems, particularly with writing about the Confederate victories in the Civil War scenarios, is we is there's a big tendency from writers to forget what that would have meant to literally an entire race of people, and you know, or there, there's a wonderful kind of brushing aside, and it's it's something you know, and it's true that those books are in some ways some of the foundational texts of the of our genre. But it's I think it's important to look at them and go, you know, we we could have approached this in a different way. And maybe, you know, from this point on, maybe we will. I think they just should have that the whole Civil War maybe never even started. Maybe it took place like, I don't know, maybe 60 days and we're done and the slaves were released and make it a everyone was happy kind of a alternate history. Maybe. I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there because, you know. Alina, what would you like to say? To come in on that, I think one of the really interesting things with utopian fiction in general is how we try and tell the truth. So if we were to have something where the American Civil War was really short and slaves were just freed, what are we then saying about the nature of slavery? Like, are we underplaying struggle? It's almost to do with how we, and I think it's always a real challenge when we're thinking about optimistic fiction of what is human nature like what struggles can we say wouldn't be nice if that hadn't happened and what struggles are sort of what struggles do we need to show 
humans did overcome like I feel like that really comes down to that's where our genre sort of gets into the weeds of what is what it is to be human and if we're talking about a optimistic civil war uh, history I would like to recommend uh, Terry Bisson's uh, novel uh, Fire on the Mountain which is whose point of divergence is John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry is much more successful and leads to a generalized slave revolt throughout the south and it goes some very interesting places after that so just throwing that out there yes the other feature to uh, remember certainly with regard to the american civil war one, one can raise the question if it was all done and dusted at first bull run and everything was over fairly quickly would the slaves have been freed as a, a consequence or would a fudge been found that is true. Uh, was that... it necessary for a, was a long, expensive war necessary uh, in order for things to happen? Sometimes if things are, uh, occur too easily, there are no big changes that result because it was all over easily. Everything's fine. I live in a dreamy world where you know, everything just happens and everything's just happy. And, you know, I need to get from under my rock and be like, oh my gosh, what's going on here? Lena? In terms of alternate history, I think we have this tendency to have a lot of like, you know, swastikas with maps and tanks on the front of books. And like an interesting thing with the Ukraine thing particularly is that Russian book propaganda, there's a lot of books coming out like that, which are like, what if we've been able to beat the British in World War II or whatever. And what we're doing, I feel like what we do as a little subset of the alternate history community is we often look at a different element of history. So, you know, David is, for example, he's really great at war, but there's still a sense of kindness in his writing. And I think that was what comes across in in the community that we're a part of is that we want to talk about love. We want to talk about activism we want to talk about the things that the positive ways that change can be made as well as like tanks and killing and all of that and I feel like that's where we can be utopian without underplaying the struggles if that makes sense. You had to write a futuristic alternate history on today's Ukraine war which none of us know the outcome I mean we can predict We can say, well, you know, well, maybe, you know, whatever, Russia will be taken down or this is going to be horrible. And we don't know the prediction. But if we if you guys were to write, I guess, an utopian version of alternate history of today's war, what would that be? Yeah. So basically um, writing the alternate history from the future of current events. Correct. Predicting the um, future and writing it because you don't know what the future is. So no matter what the future is, unless you wrote it exactly and your prediction 100% came true, it would be alternate history at that point. I mean, mean, we have major disagreements about what the past was, where all the records are. Trying to get us to agree on what the future is going to be (laughs) is going to be an entertaining um, exercise. But... um, a lot of the good discussions come with when you're talking with people who have very different ideas from you and think in very different ways. Certainly trying to predict what is going to happen and then writing from that point of view and trying to write the history of 
what is actually happening uh, in order to get to that point. Yeah, that that could be interesting. (laughs) I like that word, interesting. Lena, what are your thoughts on that? So there is a musician called Monica Liu. She was in Eurovision this year. People here will know that I love Eurovision. And she was a big advocate of Ukraine and has said multiple times she wants to run for president. The current Ukrainian president is also a media person. He started off by doing TV satire of what a government could look like. So I find her being a president of a future Polish-Lithuanian confederation quite interesting. But I think the key thing here is how important Ukrainian culture is to the world at the moment. Like just before the war was starting, their music had reached just an incredible point where they were rediscovering their old sounds while making it contemporary. And what we're seeing now is the refugee community producing some amazing stuff. And there's someone called Jerry Hale, who was the most, who's a very mainstream pop singer in Ukraine. And now she's working with some really like gifted, really protected musicians. And she's producing the best work of her life to aid the war effort. And I think where I see the excitement of Ukraine in the future and where I'd like to, where I would write things is how this huge artistic movement that we have, that they have, could be so positive to the world. Matthew, how would you write it? That's a good question. My temptation sitting here at the moment being forced to do an elevator pitch where, you know, everybody could hear it. (laughs) Is, is to kind of look at the way that the world has very much kind of come together behind them and to kind of ask the question, if we can do this for Ukraine, you know, what else could we do this for? You know, the pressing issues of our time, particularly climate change. So it would be interesting, I think, to kind of look at it and say that maybe this becomes a starting point that kind of reverses the kind of trend of increasing isolationism and disengagement from the world that a number of countries, including, dare I say, the United States, have started to engage in over the last few years and to start addressing some of these larger problems that we've been, much like an ostrich, you know, happy to stick our head in the sand and ignore. I mean, that's that's a very utopian idea, but that's what I, if you're putting me on the spot here, so that's what you're going to get. <laughs> No, I, I, I hear you. No, that, that's totally fair. That's totally fair. Alex, what do you think about writing the future of Ukraine uh, as an alternate history? Because that's what it'll be. Okay, so, I mean, I think you have to balance the utopian instinct with the facts on the ground, because it looks like the Russians may get out of this with, like, a, a few territorial concessions out east in in the Donbass because they've already established full control over Luhansk province and they might get Donetsk province although they've made a desert called Mariupol and, and called it peace and what I would do trying to balance optimism and realism is that you'd have 20 30 years in the future and you have this barrack state in the Donbass and this and a more liberal barrack state in Ukraine, because Zelensky himself has said that in the future, Ukraine will be another Israel. It'll be a very security conscious country with like soldiers in front of grocery stores and movie theaters just because of this war. And so what I would do is like sort of an Arab spring in, in the Donbass and like a sort of reunification of Ukraine 
don't know if you, any of you have seen the German movie Goodbye Lenin about the fall of the Berlin Wall, the reunification of Germany. I would go something like that in a sort of near future environment and just the opening of Donetsk and Luhansk and the rest of the Donbass to something better than just being a Russian buffer, because that's what they'll only ever be so long as that they're in, they have pro-Russian satraps running them. So that's would be my elevator pitch for a story. Okay, back to the anthology. How is it all doing? How's the sales? How much have you helped with this, uh, with the Ukraine situation? How do you feel about all of this? How do you feel about the project? Right, that obviously is uh, aimed at myself. In the first month, the book did exceptionally well. It uh, raised uh, somewhere in the region of £250 for the appeal. Since then, sales have dropped off. It's been about half of that for each month since then. So April was a good month, May and June uh, about half of that. I'm expecting it to tail off as there's not the first flush of it's new, it's on the market. Hopefully it'll settle down into a, a steady drip. It's grand total start to current day. I happened to check because I suspected this question would come up. It's, it's brought in a touch under 500 from the book sales uh, alone, which I'm modestly pleased with. Um, but that's good. But here's my question. How are you marketing the book? You yourself and or, you know, the writers like I know Alex contacted me with this podcast, giving more, you know, exposure to the book. Matthew, what are you doing? Lena, what are you doing about that? You know, just for marketing purposes, just curious how to raise more awareness that this is for a good cause. Lena, you want to go first? We raised about £420 through the writing event, which is also very, I, I felt was also very exciting because there's that two, two prongs to this. And I suspect what we'll, we've had the conversations in the past. I know Alex particularly was really keen for us to do something, another event, which I think would be fantastic. And that's something we're looking at. So that gives us another point to market the book and another point to maybe bring out some of the stories that we even came up with in the writer fund, which I think would be fantastic. So that's a big part of it. And that's part of what I see. Like this is an ongoing, I hope that this is going to be an ongoing project where we can, you know, as a group of people who've not really done this sort of stuff together before, develop and start from rather than, yeah. David? Yes. Um, one thing you have to realise about the alternate history group is that we're a bunch of individuals Coordinating alternate historians, is, it's much harder than herding cats. We're all going to go off and, and market it in our own way. Coordinated marketing strategy simply isn't going to happen. Um, Alex will sort of contact people and, and do things. I'll reference things on Twitter. I've actually worked out how to use Twitter and the like. Lena will do things her way and... It's, it's creative chaos that we come up with, but organization, us. Well, you guys are here. Alex organized this. I mean, this is like the second alternate history panel, essentially, that we've had. And you're telling me it's like herding cats. I'm like, what are you talking about? This was like super easy. Alex, Alex just Alex, did Alex, it. Alex, 
Alex organised. I mean, this is this is Alex's brainchild. We've come along because Alex uh, did, did his organising. Lena's writerthon was Lena's little baby. The uh, an- anthology came together because I pulled it together. Effectively, someone will leap up and say, "Me, me, me! I'm going to do uh, this little bit." That's how it worked. Uh, one one person will wave, wave a flag around. Everyone will follow after that, and then. That we'll all get distracted when sort of somebody else raises does something. Lena's second writerthon. Alex will organise a podcast. What whatever the next bright shiny trinket is going to be. And Alex and Lena and I have never talked about sort of if we arrange it this way or that way. Um, we all do our own thing, drag people along uh, to it, and um, bingo, things happen. I think it's worth noting also the skills that we have. So um, one person I think is worth mentioning is Dolly D. Murphy, who um, has contributed to the anthology and did a lot of work behind the scenes on sorting out schedules. There's the person, um, Monroe, who is also is not in the book, but did a lot of the work on sort of setting things up. I think like we talk about creative chaos, but what we are is a group of people who... Like, this is the first time I've seen David's face. And, like, I think we're a group of people who aren't quite used to working with each other yet. But I think that's also why this project was really exciting and why I hope that we'll be doing more like it, because it's a good group. (laughs) I think it is exciting that, you know, you guys have been doing your own thing for all this time. And, you know, they talk about a moment, a bad moment, you know, something like a war to bring you all together. It's kind of like with the pandemic, you know, with all the stuff that happened in the pandemic, all of a sudden with Zoom, I've been more connected with people that I wouldn't have talked to otherwise. And all of a sudden, oh my gosh, it's a pandemic. We can't talk to anyone. And then you're very aware that you can't talk to anyone. And so you want to talk to someone. So it's like the same thing. This Ukraine war comes up and then, oh wait, we're alternate historians. We've got to do something. And, you know, if it takes a war for this to happen, unfortunately, but at least let's hope you guys connect more often and uh, produce more anthology, more works, and hopefully make a change, even a small change in this world, because that's what we all want to do. So um, So, who knows where small changes lead to? Absolutely. Absolutely. Lena, did you have something else to say or... I was just going to say in terms of marketing, I think one of the things that we run into is something will happen with this war like Buka. And we have a small amount of time. We want to respond right away. But the question is, how can we plan ahead so that we're ready for the next, so that we're able to respond? Because we have to think strategically as well. And when you're like, I feel like this book came out of us wanting to have this emotional reaction to a problem. And that's also why it doesn't necessarily reflect the situation of Ukraine. There's a really great section in it called um, Holodomor Memorial Day, which is written from a Ukrainian point of view, from like someone from that heritage. And I think that was great. But I feel like our next step is to work, is to plan and make sure that we're prepared because you have to keep that momentum going in order to market and think. Absolutely. Got to keep uh, momentum going and got to keep positive energy flowing. And that's the only way you can uh, combat negative. Do you guys have uh, 
any final thoughts, words about anything you're writing, about this anthology, anything else? Anybody? Go buy the anthology. Yes. Go buy Building a Better Future, edited by David Flynn, part published by Sergeant Frosty Publications, uh, David's uh, publishing house. I, and I mean, he's the reason why this happened the way it did, because he, he knows publishing. He has he has his own little house, and that alone provides a certain, I don't know, certain legitimacy in the eyes of some people, which I think might have worked in its favor to get them to like click the button, spend $5, get the money into, into uh, refugee aid. And that meant a lot. Also, we owe him for uh, getting the person to do the cover art for it. There's very good cover art. The, Artist's name eludes me, but I remember thinking it's, it's it's Anastasia Nicolba. It's very good cover art, and yes, so I think that has been a part of it, doubtlessly. And so I, I think we're all just going to keep doing keep doing what we can to promote it. It's it's probably going to get harder because it, the war is not provoking the emotional reaction in the West as it was because. I mean, it's not dramatic as it, the way it used to be. It's now a slugfest in the Donbass and in Kherson, and it's kind of become part of the rhythm of things now, and we need to try to shake people out of that complacency. I mean, I have contacted my uh, alma mater's uh, alumni association to see if they can help with promoting it. Maybe do a talk in their Washington Center. I mean, I can't promise either of those, but I'm going to try, and that's what I, I'll, I'll do what I can. Just as a final thought... Yeah, as Alex said, the war's still going on. There are lots of ways to support Ukraine, to support Ukraine, um, and listen to Ukrainians and listen to and support them and hear what they're saying. So you might, I'd recommend people like Jerry Hale, Alonia Alonia, um, Kalash Orchestra, musicians, but they give a really great. I think that's a way that we can start making a changes to center Ukrainians in this. Well, this is that. That's beautiful. That's a great note. To end on, I want to say thank you to all of you for taking time away from your weekend and spending it talking to me on a podcast. So thank you all so much. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much for hosting us. Thank you very much for hosting. Yes, thank you. And thank you, dear listener, for listening to all that. And I hope you will spare some change for a good cause. And that's all I have for this episode. Next episode is going to be Book Club. We discuss uh, Kalyana by Rajni Mala Kelawan. I am beyond behind on the edits of this podcast. I'm trying to juggle getting the edits of my novel done and, of course, editing the podcast and keeping up with the reading and other stuff. So I do feel overwhelmed, but I'm trying to get it all a little bit at a time. So thank you so much for your patience. Before I go, if you loved this episode or any of my previous episodes, please take a moment to write me a review on Apple Podcasts. Please share this podcast with your family and friends and through your social media channels. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram on Living a Life Through Books. I'm also on Clubhouse. Look me up by name. I'm on TikTok. My tag is at Dr. Shnaz Ahmed. You can reach me through email. My address is livingalifethroughbooks at gmail.com. My website is shnazahmed.com. That is S-H-A-H-N-A-Z-A-H-M-E-D.com. The opening and closing music to this and all my previous episodes was composed by my husband, Brad Slavik. 
I'm Dr. Shanaz Ahmed with Living a Life Through Books signing off. Remember to water the seeds within you. It's time. It's time.